1: Hey, everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Variety and iHeart podcast, The Big Ticket. I'm your host, Mark Malkin. Today, I've got Nicholas Holt, who stars in the new very buzzy Hulu series, The Great. We talk El Fanning, Tom Cruise, and an X-Men crossover with the MCU. Then later, Nicole Avant, producer of The Black Godfather, the Netflix documentary about her father, legendary music industry power broker Clarence Avant. So stick around, we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. I'm your host, Mark Malkin. Nicholas Holt was just 13 years old when he first grabbed Hollywood's attention playing Marcus Brewer in 2002's About a Boy. Since then, we've seen him, among many other credits, battle Charlie's Theron and Mad Max Fury Road, trying to stage a royal coup in The Favourite, and now, as 18th century Russian Emperor Peter III, opposite Elf Fanning as his wife, Catherine the Great, in Hulu's The Great. I caught up with Holt to talk about working with Fanning, the training he's been doing for his work in the next Mission Impossible movie, and why he'd be up for playing his X-Men character Beast in an MCU crossover movie. Here's Nicholas Holt. Hey, Nicholas.
2: How are you? Hey, Mark. I'm very well. How are you?
1: Good. How are you coping in this crazy
2: world? Yeah, good. Good. You know, day <laughs> by day. Um, but uh, yeah, positive. Staying positive. How about you?
1: Good. Good. You know, Getting a little stir crazy, but you know, taking the dogs for very long walks.
2: (laughs) Good, 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 good. And you've got a bow tie on, so you're winning.
1: Always, I just have to. People keep making fun of me um, for wearing them, but I just have to, it's my work and my dogs are No, no, no,
2: no, you've got to do it.
1: Um, So great show. So much. Thank you. Thank you Uh, for watching. What's it like reading a script by Tony McNamara, like that first time?
2: Um, the first time reading a script by Tony, I mean, it's, it's odd because it just catches you off guard. The, the, the of phrase, the, the kind of witty dialogue that he comes out with is, is unlike anything else that I've read. Um, so it really, it really does make catch me off guard and make me laugh when I first read it. Um, and then the more you read it, the, the, the kind of the more you realize that it is very funny and, and, and smart and fast paced and, and has this great like dy- dy- dynamic qualities to it. But then it kind of suddenly realized that in amongst all that, he's, he's, brill- he's building these brilliant characters and worlds and kind of dynamics that kind of sneak up on you and, and kind of without you realizing because you're just enjoying the read and you suddenly get to the end of an episode or the end of the series and you go, wow, okay, that's not what I expected by mm-hmm. the turns and twists that it took. And I didn't expect that from that character, but I loved how, how it came about. And it's really kind of a, a great in-depth view and look at all these different um, power plays and this court like scenario of struggle for power.
1: So what did you know about Peter? What did you know about Catherine before beginning this journey?
2: Um, I really didn't know much about, uh, definitely I definitely knew, I knew zero to nothing about uh, Peter. Um, I, knew, I knew of Catherine the Great, obviously the name, and you kind of are aware of kind of rough pieces of history involved <laughs> that she was involved with, but nothing nothing major to be honest with you and it wasn't something that going into the series I kind of suddenly was like oh I've got to study up and and learn all this history because having the experience doing the favorite that was written by Tony as well I kind of knew that from that process that it's taking history and then putting a twist on it so although there are some historic you know truths to what what's displayed it's also very much about you know creating these fun dynamics and characters and this kind of microscopic look at how the court was working in our imagination at that time. So, um, so it's different with, with, with flashes and flourishes of truth, um, but actually not something that I kind of went and thought, oh, I've got to create a version of this real Peter Third who ruled, I kind of take that all from the script.
1: Your Peter is an, he's awful, he's so mean. <laughs> the, th- <laughs> the things you have to say to Catherine, aka L. Oh yeah. horrible. But how he much does,
2: fun, how much fun is it though? <laughs> he's he he does say some terrible things. He's very unfiltered. I think Peter doesn't quite have an understanding of other humans and their emotions, um, <laughs> and how things he does or says affect them. Um and that's something that perhaps he, he starts to understand later in the series. But at first, yeah, there's just horrendous, ridiculous things he'll say and do. Um and they kind of they're those laughs that kind of catch you catch on you a way where you kind of sputter through having to say these things because it's never something in a million years that you, you could even think <laughs> um, <laughs> as a rational human most of the time. But I think that's the fun of Peter. He is kind of this stream of consciousness that everything is very true and honest. Whatever leaves his mouth is exactly what's on his mind. Um, and so people do know exactly where they stand with him. His word is kind of what he says will happen and, and he does do. So there's kind of some... Uh, good in that quality in a person to a degree. Um, and then we kind of start to see him evolve through the series of this man kind of understanding his place in the world and and what, you know, how his parents have affected him, but also how the court and people in there are kind of playing him and, and him try to develop his own ideas of what's right.
1: I spoke to El the other day. Mm. We talked about the more intimate scenes
2: yeah um,
1: and she said you guys would just go at it and she said she had a hard time not laughing that you would just push each other because some of the things you say i'm like is he alive?
2: living <laughs> so tell me about that <laughs> uh there it was definitely some the, the most amusing sex scenes i think i'll ever ever definitely ever read ever performed and probably ever will perform um and it's always a slightly odd scenario that because i've worked with l with good friends and Um, and and it's brilliant to be in scenes with her because we we kind of like to push each other and and try and kind of up each other kind of like the characters do. So it's always a lot of excitement around doing scenes with her. Um, But then Tony writes these, yeah, kind of very offbeat sex scenes where the sex is perfunctory and happening and they're trying to create an air or whatever they're doing. Um, But there's also all these outside elements kind of creeping in whether it's distracting peter because there's a bee and he got stung in the eye or there's these kind of doctors prescribing things that they have to try and do to make it more likely that she'll conceive and things like that so it's um they're very difficult to do because they are very very funny um and just ridiculous and kind of already you're in a slightly uncomfortable position doing that but then added, added the sprinkle of hilarity on top of that and it becomes yeah very difficult not to start giggling and i and i giggle a lot so um that was trouble for me.
1: Yeah, who who would break who would break the most? You or Al?
2: Oh, me, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> I would, I would break. And then then it was and sometimes it would be because something happened that was funny within the scene that, that if I could have just held it on for like 20, 20 milliseconds longer, it would have been a great take. But it just makes it just makes me go. And then I'm like, right, Al, I can't, I can't look at you for the next take, I'm afraid. So I'm just gonna kind of slightly just look just left of your eyeball and I'll, I'll focus there and maybe then I won't laugh so much. And um, yeah, normally it would be me that would go first.
1: And tell me about shooting in some of these castles.
2: You have to uh, have fun running around a castle. Yeah, well we shot a lot in, in, in castles and, and real locations but we also built these um, the sound stages in East London. So I haven't, I haven't filmed something on that many stages I don't think for quite some time. Um, so the pace that you move at is a lot quicker. Um, because everything is up and ready to go um, but yeah the sets are kind of they, it's kind of almost this dilapidated big party house I suppose in some ways whereby the, it, the the castle kind of reflects Peter's running of the nation I suppose where there's fires and scraps and all these odd things going on within these walls um, but uh, we did get to spend yeah a little bit of time going to Italy to the, the Caserta Palace um, which was is an incredible place to be and then the kind of uh, that then mixed with kind of the costumes and makeup and hair and all these things kind of suddenly give you this great scope and kind of idea of what this regal kind of russian palace could have been
1: what does it what does it feel like when you first get into full makeup the full period wardrobe and you look in a mirror do you see yourself is it just sort of not out of body but it says you really i mean talk about a wardrobe transforming people
2: yeah it's particularly with peter because he's someone who's who's quite um fashion forward i suppose in a way he'll he'll he like he likes his jewelry he likes he likes to kind of impress people with his clothes and be in the latest fashion and will be intimidating with big fur coats and create dresses so that he can have a better air circulation to his genitalia things like that where you kind of got this it's a really fun character quirk and that's something that i enjoyed playing with um uh, in terms of kind of wanting higher heels so that you kind of tr- changes how you walk a little bit and um, this wig that he wears it's kind of a formal hat I suppose in a way that he will take on and off depending on what the scene is and who he's with um, so it's, it's fun and, and yeah all those things when you look in the mirror and then end up on these brilliant sets with these costumes and makeup and that kind of is just all part of the uh, the transformation. So
1: how high did your heels get?
2: You know what, they, they probably got to, I, I don't know, a couple of inches, I suppose, um, which wasn't as high as my heels that I wore in the favorite, but they still kind of, they alter your, uh, your gait, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I wore heels once, it was a Halloween, and
2: it messed up my back in such a bad way. They are, yeah, no, they're yeah. painful. I, I mean, yeah, I, yeah after a long day in those, I'm kind of like, all right, that's enough, four feet.
1: <laughs> um, Mission Impossible. So what's the training
2: like? Uh, I've loved the training. It's been really fun. It's, you know, a lot of fight training, um, vehicle work, uh, stunt driving. Um, those are all things that I kind of enjoy and, and like to do as mm-hmm. much as possible in my spare time anyway. Um, <laughs> so getting to do them is kind of uh, with the best people in the world and learn from the great stunt team. And and uh, it's just kind of, yeah, something that I, I I love doing.
1: So how much fun is it to look at a script like Mission Impossible where it's t- does it say in the script you're going to do this crazy stunt? When do you find that out? Uh,
2: the process with those films is slightly different, where there's not a lot of a script at the start of production, so it's kind of something that evolves. So you kind of get information as you go, um, and the story develops around it. It's kind of it's it's a great process. It's kind of it, it's kind of if you imagine the writing, shooting, and editing process happen all at the same time. So. Uh, Chris McQuarrie and Tom never get married to an idea where they say like, this is exactly what we're gonna do and and aim for, it's kind of always evolving. Um, So yeah, it's fun for that that sense because you're, it's, there's uh, kind of whatever skills you can bring to it are things that would then perhaps end up in the film. So what could
1: you tell me about your character? Anything?
2: Not too much at this point, sorry.
1: (laughs) But I mean, you're you're doing a Mission Impossible movie with Tom Cruise. It's the ultimate action movie. I mean, there's nothing higher, is there?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously Tom's a you know a complete movie star and, and someone who's so dedicated and hardworking and wants the best from everyone around him. And um, those are films that you know I grew up uh, you know completely printed on my my mind's eye of you know seeing scenes from the first Mission Impossible when I was a kid and just being blown away by the filmmaking. So um, it's exciting.
1: Awesome. And Beast, will he be entering the MCU?
2: Uh, I have no idea, to be honest with you. Um, I I, I don't know. Um, I I enjoyed playing the character a lot. Um, And I don't know what what Marvel plan on doing with the X-Men franchise now. So um, we'll see, as I say, I I love the character. I, I enjoy playing him and we'll see what happens.
1: Would you entertain it, revisiting the character?
2: Yeah, I would. I mean, obviously, it's always for me acting-wise. It's always kind of about trying to find new challenges and new things to do and and new versions of things. And that's something with with the Beast character that um, and Hank McCoy that Simon Kinberg was was great at giving me in in kind of the last film and over the evolution of those movies was kind of taking him from this, you know, kind of uh, character who was ashamed of his mutation and and very you know lacking confidence, and then becoming kind of um, this uh, right hand man to Charles and their relationship evolving. And then by the end of the last movie, kind of becoming the, the leader of the, the, um, the school for the gifted. So it was, um, that was a fun evolution. And, and that's something that I'm always looking for is how a character changes. And um, I think there's a lot more to explore with that character. So I'd be interested to know um, where, where they see it going next.
1: And a fun question. What's the one TV show that you could watch over and over again and you never get bored?
2: Oh, a TV show that I lo- love watching over and over again. Uh, oh, Faulty Towers, I watch a fair bit. Um, yeah. Deep I really like. Um, at the moment, I've been watching Shit's Creek. Um, what do you like about Shit's Creek? It, it's fun. It's a good escape. I think you know, it. 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 it the acting is brilliant. It's. It's just. It, it. Yeah. It's a great situational comedy. I'm. I'm enjoying it a lot.
1: That's amazing
2: yeah
1: nicholas it's always a pleasure seeing you whether it's virtually hey. or in person
2: yeah very good to see you take care of yourself you stay safe and well thank you for taking the time you too got it take care Bye.
1: we're going to take a short break but when i return i talk with nicole Avant, producer of the black godfather a netflix documentary about her music industry powerhouse dad clarence Avant. stick around Lancaster, South Carolina,
0: is in the middle of not much. But growing up nearby, I knew it as the hometown of a black man named Jim Duncan, who became a Super Bowl hero. Duncan, up to the 15th, the 20th. And
2: on my new podcast, Return Man, I'll discover that his death still makes no sense at all.
0: The story was that my brother went into the police station, took a gun off a police officer, and shot himself in the head. Most people don't believe that. For the past three years at the Rock Hill Herald, I've looked back at a story that's timelier than ever.
1: Have you got some time to talk? It involves race, the mental state of the person, and a town that was scared
2: to death to say anything.
0: Listen to Return Man on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: If you took away the date and time, could you
1: imagine that happening today? Yes, you can. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. The documentary The Black Godfather chronicles the life of Clarence Avant. Now in his 80s, Avant is recognized as one of the most powerful behind-the-scenes insiders in the music industry, as well as in the political arena. Among those interviewed in the doc are Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Clive Davis, and the late Bill Withers, to name a few. I talked to Clarence's daughter, former ambassador to the Bahamas, Nicole Avant, who made her producing debut with the doc. Here's Nicole Avant. How are you?
3: I'm really well. Wait, hold on. Let me get the, okay. Yeah. I'm really well. How about you?
1: I'm good. You know, coping, trying yeah. to. It's,
3: it's, it's, it's a new world. It's a new world. It really
1: world. is. It's, just, it's disconcerting because we just we have no idea what's going to happen. Just no, yeah. no idea.
3: Yeah.
1: So what are you doing during quarantine? How are you keeping sane?
3: Um, lots of prayer. <laughs> lots of prayer, lots of meditation, and lots of cleaning. And <laughs> it's actually been good for me. I, I need to redirect my life anyway and refocus my energies and mm-hmm. trying to figure out, you know, or trying just to own what works in my life, what doesn't work in my life, and what can I really let go of now that I've been carrying around forever that I don't need people, <laughs> things, you know? So <laughs> it's it's actually been very, um Beneficial
1: for me. So let's talk about The Black Godfather. My husband and I just watched it the other night.
3: Oh, my goodness.
1: How did it come about where you finally said to your dad, like, hey, we need to do this doc about you?
3: I, you know, I've always wanted to make films about, um, or documentaries, so to speak, specifically about entrepreneurism and black entrepreneurism. And also I wanted to make a, an American, I wanted to celebrate the American dream in a documentary. And I always wanted to focus on entrepreneurism and, and like I said, and civil rights activists and, and mix the two, they always seem to be separate. Mm-hmm. You were either, only if you were black, you're only a civil rights activist, or maybe if you were an entrepreneur, we talked talk about you separately. <laughs> I'm like, you know, everyone was working together. and. And I, I just thought, you know, with all the people in my life and I'd hear all their great stories and many of them triumphant, but they would all also tell me all of the endurance that they had to, to experience and all of the sacrifices and all of the hatred that they put up with. And I thought, we need to tell a story. So finally, I just said to my dad, forget your book. I know you want to write a book. Your personality won't even come out in the book. I need, there are people who are alive. Bill Withers, you know, thank God we had him in the film, you know, when he was alive. And Oscar Cohen, who also, by the way, just passed. And he was like my uncle. And he worked for, you know, uh, Joe Glazer. And he and my dad came up at the same time. So it just, I wanted to celebrate the American story. I wanted to tell a great American story that celebrates the passion and the endurance and the success and the energy of all Americans. That's really what I wanted to do.
1: How much convincing did it take to tell you, to convince your dad to do the doc?
3: You know what? It it was easy this time, I think, easier around this time because he got old, as he was getting older, he started getting a little more gentle, thank God. And he just, I said, Dad, I'm doing a movie. It is what it is. I already called everybody. They said they would be in it. And he says, well, how much am I getting paid? Who's doing it? I said, you don't have to, you don't get to control this one thing in your life, how about that? And uh, he was actually really good because once I made it about, not a movie about him, once I told him I was gonna celebrate what I told you, civil rights activists and people who really push the needle forward and make it a celebration of black, Black people working together and Black businesses working in America. Once I made it about that and I took it off of him, he thought, oh, yeah, 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 that story needs to be told. You know, make sure you tell Hank Aaron's story. Make sure you tell, you know, and then he started getting excited. Once I took the focus off of him.
1: It's called the Black Godfather. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So now it's like, I was basically the Black God daughter who said, guess what, Claire? (laughs) It's, it's, you know, we're making a movie. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Like, come on.
1: What do you want people to know about your dad?
3: Well, I think it's... The, you know, the movie really is, it's, I think he's lived a life of, like I said, um, I want people, I really wanted people to take away that it's important to have a strong sense of self. It's important to keep moving forward. It's important to pay back. It's important to move the needle. It's important to, when you do become successful, it's an, also, it's a very important to take risks in life. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're going to fail. Sometimes people are going to say no, so what it's a part of life you keep going you, you you know pick yourself back up again. I mean we all love stories like that no movies made, no TV shows made, nothing is made no song is written without the hero usually getting back up and winning the race and so I want people to, I wanted people to take away I wanted people to be inspired and empowered and motivated to be their their best selves and to and to and to give examples of people who look at Bill Withers. I mean, he started, he came to my dad, he was in his late 30s and he thought his career was over. He didn't even think he had a music career. He was a mechanic and and look what happens though. He had one more shot and he said, eh, I'll take one more meeting. He's probably gonna say no, but because he got up again and did it, here's Lean On Me and Ain't No Sunshine and Grandma's Hands and everything else. But had he had had he have said forget it you know i'm a nobody we wouldn't have heard the music you know so and i also i love the idea that none of these people by the way if you think about matthew none of them should have been friends oscar cohen and joe blazer and clarence avance and and all these people bill withers quincy jones like how they even all came together and then made the magic that they did i think that's the important thing for people to take away from the film is that you never know what's gonna show up. You just really have to show up and be your best and see what happens.
1: Did you learn anything about your dad that you didn't know?
3: I did, I I didn't know, I really didn't, I took it for granted how hard his childhood was and how um, how abusive it was, you know, having a stepfather, you know, really beating up my grandmother in front of him and in front of the other children and and really my dad didn't really have a childhood I mean he took care of seven kids because Everyone was working and they were so poor and he honestly really did only have sweet potatoes to eat and mm-hmm. never even you know anything So I think I didn't realize It explained to me why he's so rough on the outside a little bit because it's his protective Coat that he wears mm-hmm. and I think happy Hughes said that best, you know, it's just all a facade um, but I learned I learned that about him that he really um, I didn't realize before how much abuse he had really suffered I should say it that way
1: and how hard was it to hear that those stories yes very hard for me yeah and
3: and it made a lot of sense of when everything did fall down for him and and everything kind of blew up at one time and we lost everything I think everything triggered to his childhood again of not having things uh, he didn't have anybody to really rely on. And then, thank God, like he says, you know, I don't have problems. I don't ha- I have friends. But I think what, it, you know, what that really says is thank God he did call upon his friends
0: mm.
3: and, and admit and, and become humble and say, I, I've just lost everything based on a bad choice, a bad decision, what have you. And Jerry Moss showed up and Joe Smith showed up and Quincy showed up and everyone bailed him out. Thank God.
1: Did did you realize when you were a kid who your dad was, what he was doing?
3: Uh, A little, yes and no. I, I knew that he was very powerful and I knew that people were always, because the phone rang constantly and I always heard him fixing something or giving advice. And then I did see him on Soul Train. I caught him on Soul Train one day and he was giving an interview with Don Cornelius that we put in the yeah. film that I found. And that's when I thought, oh, he must be a big deal because he's on television. Why is my father on television? And it really wasn't also until my friends in school, they would always ask questions like, is that Hank Aaron? Is, why is Hank Aaron here? Why is why are these people in your world and they, because your dad's in the record business. So they thought, so they didn't understand the scope of his, of his life. Um, But it really was when I was young and saw Soul Train, watch Soul Train and saw him on that.
1: Now tell me about, no, you have to tell me about at least one or two experiences of someone showing up at the house where you were just like, this person is here? What is this person doing here?
3: Um, I think the one time I, I was very starstruck was um, Whitney Houston showed up one day on a Sunday, and I had just been listening to the greatest love of all. I mean, I'd sing it in the car like I was Whitney Houston, you know, God forbid. And I just, I I was floored. Like, I stood at the front door, and I thought, oh, my God. Oh Oh, my God. This is a real this is a real celebrity, this is a big deal. And it's someone that I admired so much. You know, I really, I mean, I grew up with um, Dionne Warwick's kids and I, we all went to school together. So I knew Whitney just through them, but i never met her before. And she was my favorite artist at the time. And uh, I remember being very, very starstruck, like almost wanting to go fix myself up for some reason. It was weird.
1: So you're putting this documentary together, I have to ask, do you pitch it anywhere else or do you go straight to Netflix? Yes.
3: No, I actually really was going, I never was going to take it to Netflix. I, I actually had this idea in my head since I was a little girl. I really did. And um, I had told Ted, even when I was dating him, you know, there's this idea I have for this film. I, and I said to him, I'm going to take it to HBO. I hope they'll buy it. I hope, you know, it needs to be on a platform like that. And then once I started getting the interviews and everyone started confirming, Ted said, do you really have all these people saying yes? And I said, yeah, yeah, for sure. And he said, let me take a look at it again. Let, let, me, let me look at it again. And then at, the, you know, at that point, Ted's a part of the family and he saw a solid film and he saw an important film and he actually wanted to tell the story just as much or even more than I did. So, and I had a great team to work with at Netflix, so I was lucky.
1: Did he give you notes on it? Yes, yes. Tell Ted me about that.
3: Yes, Ted, Ted, you know, I asked for them. I have to say, I, in fairness to him, I, was, I would ask all the time, as a first time filmmaker, producer on this, tell me if I'm getting this right, or what's the theme in this, what am I missing? And he was great. He gave great, great, great notes. We used a lot of Ted's notes.
1: Were there notes that you ignored?
3: Uh, no, no, he's actually <laughs> really, he's pretty good. And, and I hope so. Yeah, exactly. He better be good. Yeah. But he was, he, was um, he, you know, he reminded me of a few things that we should do and he, and talk about perseverance. I mean, he made sure that we got Sid Sheinberg in this film. I mean, I kept saying, you know, Ted, he's really sick. I don't want to push. I don't want to push. I love him so much. And Ted said, "We'll wait for him. We'll wait until he could do an interview. And, uh, and then we were able to get him a few months before he passed.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's say you're going to make a feature film narrative. Who plays your dad?
3: Oh my gosh. Oh, that's a good question. Who plays my dad? Someone like, um, hmm. Forrest Whitaker made, no, I don't know. Forrest could play him though, if you want, because he knows him and he, he, mm-hmm. he, he could get him actually. <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. <laughs> I'm going to say Forrest Whitaker right now. I'll think of somebody, okay. I think what that's what he
1: got got. For that?
3: Yeah, he, he's good. Forrest is good.
1: I love that you let your dad be salty. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you didn't, didn't.
3: No, no sugarcoating, no making yeah. him look anything different than he really is. I, I definitely wanted everyone just to be themselves.
1: Awesome. Nicole, thank, thank you. you so much. Stay thank safe. you so
3: much. You stay safe. Be well. And I'll see you soon.
1: Coming up next week, Aidy Bryant. She's talking about the second season of her Hulu series, Shrill, why she'd be scared to meet Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and if she's ever thought about when her time on Saturday Night Live might come to an end. I'll have that and more next week. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and I'll see you next time.